From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Amy Foudy, a certified sports field manager and natural grass field consultant for the Moats Group. The Moats Group has over 45 years of experience in building natural and synthetic fields at the highest level. Amy was the athletic turf manager and assistant athletic director for outdoor facility operations at Michigan State University when I first met her after a four-year stint at the Big House at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Amy has been a leader among sports field managers over her career and recently served on the all-female grounds crew at the Little League Softball World Series. Successful sports fields and golf courses are very dependent on a functioning soil. And a functioning soil is dependent on organic matter levels as well as soil temperature and moisture. Managing these vital soil properties requires good physical property management. And for that, you should turn to DryJack Services that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. DryJack Services offer the most effective way to get the most out of your sand application. So contact your local DryJack rep for more info or visit dryjack.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm joined with a Michigan State alum, fellow Sparty. While I'm not an alum, I work there, so I have great fondness. Amy Foudy is a certified sports field manager currently with the Mott's Group, but I knew her and many knew her for many years as the sports turf manager and director of operations at Michigan State University. So, Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time in your new role. I see you're living in Florida these days? Yeah, thank you, Frank. Yeah, my new role uh, with the Moats Group, I am able to work remote. So we're here in Naples, Florida, and our headquarters is in Cincinnati, Ohio. Excellent. And so I could tell by your LinkedIn profile that you do a fair amount of traveling. Yes, that is correct. In my role as a natural grass field consultant for the company, working with collegiate and professional clients, I do a lot of traveling around the United States. Right. Yeah. And that's got to be great fun. Oh, I can't even tell you how much fun it yeah. is. <laughs> All right. All right. So listen, I want to start out with, you know, a little bit of getting to know you. I mentioned you had gone to Michigan State University, but it also appears you went to Carroll University. Is that in Wisconsin or is that Carroll College? That is Carroll College in Wisconsin. And you went to Carroll University. Yes. So it's in Waukesha, Wisconsin. I went right after I got out of high school. I did a year there. Originally wanted to go into adolescent psychology and help kids in their adolescence to work through, you know, those challenging years. And, you know, sometimes you just have things that happen and just wanted to help those kids that could use a hand, you know. Yeah, for sure. To help guide them on the path. No doubt. Well, I've got a sarcastic comment to make there. And that is you actually did get your psychology degree ultimately from Michigan State. But hearing your interest in adolescent behavior, I'm sure that prepared you well for coaches and administrators or, or athletes sometimes. <laughs> The way sometimes they deal with us, right? Not always their best selves. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I have a few comments that I make around that. <laughs> Growing grass isn't the hard part of the job for a sports field manager. Mm-hmm. It's connecting with all those people that you need to deal with on a daily basis mm-hmm. and knowing that those folks could probably have you fired for about anything at any time. So yeah. like the psychology piece of it and what you were speaking of, I think was a real critical factor for the success I've had over the past 34 years. So you get out of Michigan State, and like many who ended up in sports turf, you were in golf for a little bit. And you have the two-year degree that you got when Trey was there, right, back in the Mm -hmm. 90s. And then, you know, obviously the psychology degree came much later as part of your employment there. But you started out at the golf course. Let's start about that first transition. And then we'll talk about how you went from Michigan to Michigan State. Because people who don't appreciate the rivalry, I can't even believe they interviewed you at Michigan State. (laughs) uh, Knowing you were coming from Michigan, thinking you were a spy or, or something. So let's start with the transition from being in the golf course business and superintendent to then becoming a groundskeeper at the U of M? What motivated you to make that move? Well, first of all, I fell in love uh, in my teens with working on the golf course, Hmm. being outside, the people, the work. It just was fantastic. So I spent about eight years total in the golf business, uh, worked for some great superintendents in the greater Milwaukee area, and just had phenomenally wonderful experiences with, with those superintendents. Great mentors definitely really shaped me going to Michigan State. And, you know, I just found that when I got to school, I knew after I got out, when I got into being an assistant, I had fallen in love with a classmate. And we've now been married for about 25 years. (laughs) And it's hard for two superintendents to be married to each other. Uh I mean, I don't know if you've ever interviewed people that two superintendents, that's a pretty rare thing. It's pretty rare. It's hard to find jobs. Yeah. Right? It's hard to find jobs together. That's right. So that really was my first transition was that I realized that being in Michigan, being married, my husband was a golf course superintendent, that maybe I needed to look outside of golf. And what did I love? Mm -hmm. I loved sports growing Mm -hmm. up. And that was that transition for me. Ah, excellent. So I'm assuming... You know, when you got to the U of M, you know, you had golf expertise. You needed the sports side of the business a little bit. Did you just join the crew or did they immediately make you like an assistant of sorts? Or did you just join the crew as a groundskeeper? Well, I did. I joined the crew taking care of specifically football and soccer facilities. Ah. So the big house stadium, Mm -hmm. the football practice fields and the soccer field were my sports turf manager responsibilities. So... I have to highlight a couple things in that experience. You know, coming from golf, I thought I knew everything there was to know about growing grass. And right, wrong, or indifferent, Mm -hmm. I thought I had the world by the tail, (laughs) you know? And I quickly learned how different sports turf and golf turf management, how different they actually are. Mm -hmm. And I always credit, so my first year at Michigan, I went to a Big Ten sports turf managers meeting at Ohio State. And Bob Hudzik from Penn State, Brian Gimble, and Eric Adkins, mm. I met these guys. I mean, they're pillars yeah. in the sports turf community, right? Yep, 100%. And they must have thought that I was 
I had a lot of potential, but oh no, like she she needs some help, right? And the three of those guys took me under their wing and gave me the greatest education that I could ever ask for when it came to sports turf management. Because I tell you what, that first year that I was at Michigan was not a good year for our stadium field. And we had a lot of challenges and I was thrust into something from a public eye, an internal eye uh, that I was not prepared for. I didn't realize all the different hats that a sports field manager has to wear. So you were there at the transition from natural grass to synthetic? I, I was there through that. Yep. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, Amy. You you got nerves of steel. So how long were you on staff when it finally crossed the line and they pulled the plug and said, we're going to do synthetic? How, how long were you there? I was there for five seasons, and we gave it the old college try for three seasons, and then, you know, then we looked to start transitioning. There's always more than just the superintendent or the field manager Mm -hmm. that caused something to not work out. Mm -hmm. It's always easy to point the finger, oh, that superintendent, Mm -hmm. he doesn't know what he's doing, look at his greens or brown. But there's so many factors that people don't understand and that we just don't talk about that are internal that, that affect a lot of what people see, right? Yeah. And I wonder if your choice of words isn't the tell here. You gave it the old college try. To me, that's like we did just about everything in our power and we didn't Mm -hmm. have enough, nor was the infrastructure set up for us to be successful, right? It's like you almost, when you say something like that, it's like, yeah, well... Based on what was in front of us, it was only so much we could do. And I'm assuming that's what you mean, Amy, that even though you see the path, and even golf course superintendents see these things too, you see what you need to fix. Those trees need to go. The soil Mm -hmm. needs to be redone. They need to stop practicing in this area. We need to get the lights in. Listen, we're going to get the technology because I know you're, you're out there understanding it better than all of us. But when you're confronted with those things, there are a lot of things that aren't in your control when you're the manager of an operation like the big house. That is absolutely correct, Frank. I mean, you always learn so much more through, I don't really want to call it a failure because I didn't feel like I had failed. Though some people may see that externally like that. I mean, we did everything we could. You learn and then you learn next time when you're given an opportunity like how to attack some of those pitfalls and make sure that they don't happen again. So now off you go to Sparty land and now you're in not just over the fields, but you're over a lot of the fields. Even before you became the assistant athletic director, you had your hands in almost everything going on there. I remember talking to the guys, uh, you know, about you after I had left Ricky and Vargas and Trey and Jim Crum and, all the bums that that were there. And I understand Vargas is coming to the end. Uh, I think Joe's going to have his farewell uh, in January at the MTF conference. So the job opens up at Michigan State. And I'm assuming with those mentors that you mentioned, they're like, hey, Amy, this is the right move. You were probably recruited. And then assuming you felt you couldn't do it and then went for it, how did it play out? Well, I was in contact with the senior associate AD at the time, and uh, Eric had come to Michigan State and then decided after a couple of years to take some time away from the business. So 
you know, they reached out and we talked about it. And I tell you what, it was like coming home. You know, yeah. I would always say to people, you know, I went from the outhouse to the penthouse, <laughs> kind of my joke, right? Because Michigan State, you know, Frank is an egg school. It is, right? through and through. And the crown jewel of their agriculture sits in Spartan Stadium. <laughs> exactly. Like right. that was, that's how I feel. I get chills yeah. thinking about it's it. So right? great. Yeah. Because basically I was told you cannot fail. What do you need? To make sure that you don't fail because everybody from the president to the athletic director to the football coach to the turf department to yeah. all the way down the road. What do we need to do to be successful? You know, no pressure or anything. <laughs> you know? And so we sat down and we talked it all through and, you know, it was fantastic. The experience that I had there. They told me, they said, if we can't get this done in the next three years, like maintain this grass here, we're going to have to think about going to synthetic. And I said, no, no, we're not doing it, right? That's right. And then three (laughs) years from the year I got hired, we won the National Collegiate Football Field of the Year Award to solidify grass stain in Farm Stadium. So, you know, that for me was the goal at that point. That was the goal. So we'll wrap this segment up chatting about the unique thing that went on there doing the grass field. And that was the earliest iterations of the modular system, right? That you guys were putting in and out. Now, for many people listening might not be aware of this, this technology was We used this when I was there in the early 90s in preparation for the World Cup in 94 that they played at the Silverdome. And that technology then, they had perfected it, Trey and Steyer and Sorokin. And you think about the names involved, you know, there's still sort of legends in that area and messing around with the same stuff, Amy, uh, with FIFA now, that same cast of characters, the usual suspects uh, (laughs) uh, over there. So talk a little bit about somebody in your role under the microscope Basically, these turf professors must have come around and said, hey, let's put this modular system in there. Or was it your idea to try that there? And I guess a little bit about the leap and how it worked out. And ultimately, I think it's not in there anymore, is it? Okay. Lots of questions to unpack there. So basically, the pod system had been installed for a season, season and a half when I arrived. So I was not the first person to manage that field. Eric Adkins had been there for a year and, you know, like I had mentioned earlier, just decided to step away from the business for a little bit. So I inherited the modular field system and frequently tapped, you know, Crum and Vargas and Trey and all those guys for advice and discussion. Also had a great young staff, always had interns and things like that. Right. And we did not remove a module until the day that we took them all out in 2018 when we redid the field. Really? This is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. So that's further testament to natural grass fields can work in those high-use stadiums. Now, I guess that really is all there needs to be said about the growing grass in that stadium. Let me just clarify, Amy, you didn't have to replace those things. Obviously, you played, well, I'm assuming, eight or nine games. Can you talk about the larger use of the stadium with the grass on it? Was it just for football only, or were there many other events and routine passive traffic that was happening 
beyond the maintenance, just to give a perspective on how much uh, you felt that field could hold up to the wear and tear. Well, all primary use was done by football. So we had spring training. They have 15 practices in the spring. Some of those practices would be in the stadium. So out of 15 practices, probably a minimum of five practices in the spring. And then we would have two, three weeks of camp activities in the stadium where they might bring some of their higher-end recruits in for workouts and do some different things. And then in August, we would have scrimmages. Many of those scrimmages ended up being more plays than games. So there was probably three of those. And then we had our regular season. So that encapsulated the majority of the activity. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you look at the growing season and the soil temperatures and things like that, Michigan and sunny days, we were at our max, essentially, for what we could do in that stadium. Now, we also had little corporate events. We tried to squeeze in little things like donor events, small events that could happen down there that would not damage the turf in any way. So it held up to a fair amount of use. It did. It was 100% bluegrass field. Yeah. Okay. So listen, Amy, uh, we'll take a break, hear a message from our sponsor, and when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about your new role and confronting some of the questions about natural grass and synthetic surfaces. Looking forward to getting your long wisdom on this. I'm sure you've had to think about it a few times. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Amy Foudy. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Effective fertilizer and pesticide application demands precision, whether it's a sports field or a golf course. And for that precision, you need our partners at Frost Spray Technology Products. The experts at Frost offer the latest technology and can deliver what you need when you need it. Precision applications require the right equipment to get the product applied at the right rate at the right time. Frost Spray Technology has the expertise you can rely on. Buy your next sprayer from a sprayer company, not a mower company. Learn more about all that Frost offers at FrostServe.com. That's Frost, S-E-R-V.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with Amy Foudy. Amy, we left off really with you at Michigan State, uh, where you wrapped up right before the pandemic, it looks like. And went down to be a, looks like a park manager at a sports complex in Florida. Can you talk a little bit about leaving MSU, the penthouse? Uh, And you went down to the beach, I guess. You left the penthouse for the beach. Yes. I was a field manager, associate AD at Michigan State, 16 years. And very honestly, Frank, that kind of burned out. You got a lot of outdoor teams, facilities, staff, coaches. We had some retirement of key folks in our department, Mm. and I just got burned out. And I didn't know what direction seemed appropriate for me. And a friend of mine uh, approached me um, that I had worked with over the years and said, hey, I got this operations gig going down in Naples, Florida, Paradise Coast Sports Complex. Would you like to be the GM? Talk through all that and what that looked like and this sounds interesting. It sounds like something that might be in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were building the park at the time. And so I said, yeah, like, I'm going to take a little bit of a leap of faith here and Mm. let's go. So my husband and I moved to Florida 
And long story short, the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. We had lots of construction challenges related to that and just process in the county. And, you know, for me, it ended up being something that I ended up not really enjoying. Mm. I think I knew that pretty quickly that I missed, you know, the collegiate professional sporting environment. Mm. This was a youth sports Mm. complex Mm. and it just wasn't a good fit. Hmm. It's interesting. It's affluent community down there in Collier County. So I think without the pandemic, you at least would have been able to do things at a pretty high level, right? I mean, I know government gets involved, and that makes things messy to a certain extent. Maybe a little bit more bureaucracy than you were interested in? Uh, Yeah, it was a learning experience, that's for sure, Frank. Okay, so you wrap it up, and everybody's gotten their pound of flesh, but you get something for that too, right? And now it sounds like a really ideal position for somebody with your depth of experience. And it also sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, it's keeping you close to the stuff you like the most. Looks like you're doing a lot of projects at the collegiate and upper levels. Oh yeah. I tell you what, I think I found a dream job. (laughs) We spent about a month kind of going back and forth because they wanted to really put a lot of effort and really reinvigorate uh, the natural grass division of Moats. You know, they're a 46 year old company been building natural and synthetic fields around the world for a very high-end events in a lot of the premier-type leagues, MLB, MLS, mm-hmm. NFL, you know, all of that. And to be a part of reinvigorating a part of the business that started the business was a fantastic fit for me. Hmm. As a former field manager, I love and understand their side. Right. As a former owner's rep project manager on the owner's side, I understand all of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think it really gives me a, a unique perspective to now sit on the other side of the table and help people understand and navigate the process. Being able to see from both lenses what they're experiencing and how to help them through it. Because let's be honest, Frank, building a field, building a golf course is a lot different today than it was 20 years ago. Oh, night and day. The technology and things that are coming around, the expectations, just sand specifications, right? I mean, just specifications for materials. I mean, didn't even exist when I was at state. We barely had those sorts of things that we could even teach the sports field guys about. I mean, Kent Kurtz ran the old STMA years and years ago before it eventually made it into Kim Heck's hands and just doing spectacularly now. But things have changed dramatically. Now, I want to ask you a question going back to your background. How much do you think your psychology degree has helped you navigate to the place you're at in your career now and how much it also contributes to your success in your role with the group? Oh, tremendously. I will go back to this every time. Like, it's not the grass that gives you problems, right? (laughs) Grass doesn't talk back to you. Grass doesn't have a budget. Grass doesn't have challenges and events and things. I mean, it was instrumental, I think, in the success, taking sociology and psychology and just I mean, I used to never go anywhere without a leadership book in my briefcase. You know, people always knew and would ask what I was reading because they were fascinated by that. And connecting with people is so critical in everything that you do. The most successful people in every profession have that ability to connect. 
And you seem to approach a lot of these issues being curious. It seems like every situation you've been in, you have two things that I think you must need to be successful. One is to be curious about what everybody's coming to the table with and then make sure you've got the resources to meet their expectations, right? I mean, what do you want? And am I given the resources to produce these things? I would assume, just like a golf course superintendent, it's your job to advocate for the resources that you need and then collectively to figure out how problems get solved or things get fixed or people get hired. Is it any more complicated than that, Aim? It seems like you have the natural ability to do that. Oh, I appreciate that. Compliment. Yeah. What you just laid out is so complicated. (laughs) You know, it's a lot of different things, but I think you have to come to the table curious. Yeah. Because it's not about me. It's about what do you need? And I think that's the thing I love about most is that as an organization, that's what we're all about. Like, what do you need and how can we help you find the solution that's right for you? And that's kind of the mentality that I've always had. Mm-hmm. So it was a very natural fit to be a part of the Moats family. So now I have very pertinent questions about your role as a natural grass person and how often you're put in the position where you have to debate whether a surface should be synthetic or natural. Maybe debate is not the right word. Where it's up for discussion. We're doing a, I don't maybe you guys go in and do a needs assessment based on the amount of use of something. I mean, obviously with the company that's basically been around since the whole thing started, right? The moats people must have this wealth of knowledge and particularly how construction's evolved. Can you talk to me a little bit about where that conversation starts in doing a needs assessment for the question about whether you should be implementing or maintaining a natural grass field or a synthetic field? Now, I know it's not that simple, Amy, right? Because game field versus practice fields, you know, many fields versus one field. Let's just take it as We're going to build a field that's going to be our community centerpiece, our university centerpiece. It's going to get the same amount of use that you had at Michigan State, maybe a little bit more. Let's start with a community or even a a small college that might have some resource limitations. Where do you start with a needs assessment, natural or synthetic? I think my approach often just centers around, you know, what's the best solution for the client? You know, what's your budget? What's your staffing? What's your operational budget from year in and year out? Your location, what kind of weather do you have there? What kind of seasons do you have? Field usage, you know, how many events do you want to hold on this a year? You know, I think there's lots of great, you know, research that's been done over the past 10 years related to field usage and natural grass and synthetic fields. So to me, it's not like a synthetic versus natural discussion. I've never approached that debate in that way. It's what's really the best solution in this particular instance that we can figure out. Even at Michigan State, I put in a few synthetic fields while I was there because it was the right solution for the situation that we were in. So there definitely are situations where based on your needs, I'm assuming one of those carpets was field hockey which is very difficult to maintain uh, (laughs) close-cut turf, right? You're laughing, right? Absolutely. Like a putting green, right? (laughs) (laughs) Field hockey, 
And then the other one is lacrosse gold mouths. They wear out synthetic surfaces. So there are a couple that are problematic. So, and that's what's good to hear, right? Because we do hear it should be grass. And we certainly are hearing this mantra from the professional ranks these days. And, uh, you know, led by a Cornell guy, uh, J.C. Treader is a Cornell grad. And he's been uh, very outspoken. And now that this is a high-profile issue, what happens when you say the right thing here is synthetic turf and they still want natural turf? Because you know you've done it at a really high level. Do you have to start to talk to them about the kind of stuff Tony Leonard does at, with the Eagles and they do in Pittsburgh where they're laying grass on top of, uh, you know, stripping it out and putting it in a new field of thick-cut, really good sod? Do you sometimes say I, they still want natural even though you're telling them the right thing is synthetic? I don't really tell them what I think is the right solution. I put two options on the table for them. Hmm. And then we talk through what in their mind makes this the right solution. Because I just want to do what the client wants to do. And I think some of the reasons that I've been successful over the years is that there was almost never a time that I would go to like Coach Antonio or the athletic director and say, no, we're not doing this. (laughs) We can do this. And these are the consequences. These are the challenges that will be faced through that particular process. As long as you're okay with that, we'll get it done then those decisions can be made. And I take that same approach today when I work with clients because I think as long as you lay out and are honest and transparent with the things that come with both of those, then it's really up to them about what's the right solution for their organization, their program, and their team. And do you oftentimes have to say to them when you lay out the scenarios, it's one thing to build it, it's an entirely different thing to maintain it? And synthetic or natural, there has to be a, you know, an effective operation in place that can do that. Do you often find yourself recommending things for them to build and then saying, you better shore up this part of your operation if you intend on maintaining this thing at a high level? Or are most of your clients already at a pretty high level and they're just separating out the surfaces a little bit? Well, just this morning, Frank, I had a conversation very similar to this. This potential client would like to have a natural grass soccer surface. Okay, so let's talk about that. How many events do you want to have on a year? How much are you willing to put in to pay staff? What kind of a capital budget do you have to buy mowers and other equipment? What size building are you going to build to store all these things? Because you don't want to leave them outside. So part of what I bring to that table is knowing how to set up an operation and talking them through that process and what the real costs are initially, and then you're in and you're over. I think they'd be lucky to have you, Amy, come in and clear these things up. These become very heated debates. We have these things regularly here uh, in the Northeast. You know, us Easterners, we like to argue. And communities (laughs) create these issues, right? Especially, I find this most common in affluent communities. That There's a sense of pride associated with having a, uh, what they call a turf field, right, Amy? They've totally co-opted our natural grass. We have to call it natural grass. We can't even call it turf grass because they think turf grass is synthetic grass. So we won't go down that rabbit hole, but I really, I think, you know, these kinds of things are much like pesticide debates on golf courses. People dig their heels in on emotional sides, on prideful sides. And that's where I I know you'd tell every sports turf manager to take a few psychology and sociology classes, wouldn't you? 
Oh, absolutely. They're very, very helpful. But I think all these things have to be talked about up front. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think that's where sometimes people fumble a little bit when they're dealing with architects and other folks through like high-end processes that, yeah, we can build this for you, but you need to understand all of the additional costs mm-hmm. that goes into it. And if you're good with that, then we can move forward. Like moats, you know, we're very transparent, eyes open from start to finish because our name is going to be on that field for forever. That's exactly right. In that we build that for them. So we want to set them up for success in the long run. So one of the things you mentioned earlier is how much has changed around the way we construct fields. Obviously, things have changed around the way we manage fields. But the other thing that's changed dramatically is testing and safety and performance of these fields. When you were at Michigan State and you're you know, operating at a really high level there, and you obviously had the guy who brought the Clegghammer into the lexicon of what we do in turf in Trey Rogers— Was it a routine part of your work to at least get a sense of what kind of numbers the field generated on firmness, rotational force? Obviously, ball roll doesn't matter as much on a football field per se, but maybe you did that. Obviously, that changed a lot. Let's just start with, did you do regular testing and was it an important part of what you were doing? Because I see that as a really important part of what sports turf needs to do moving forward is performance and safety testing. Absolutely. I mean, all of that stuff was done under complete confidentiality Mm. for the university's sake. I mean, it's not unlike what the NFL does with their testing, but ranges are thought about for us as well, Frank. I used a lot of moisture content Mm -hmm. data, TDR data mm-hmm. and clay data to kind of find what my secret sauce was for a perfect surface. Mm-hmm. In communication with the training staff, the athletic training staff, and the coaching staff. Beautiful. So it was it was a discussion that was had amongst all of us and an understanding that we had that we could speak about these things. For example, if the athletic trainer comes up after a practice and says, hey, Aim, we have some sore ankles and shins today on the natural field. And you water that a little bit more to soften that up for me for tomorrow. I knew what that meant. Hmm. You know, we had had conversations in the off season to talk about that, about what fatiguing injuries and things like that. I mean, we got into the weeds quite a bit. But there are a lot of factors that contribute to injuries, Frank. That's correct. Football is a man-on-man collision sport, right? I remember what Don Waddington looked me in the face when I was having the same conversation 30 years ago when I was just getting started out with my PhD. I remember seeing Don. I knew the work he did with Trey. And I'm like, Don, it's really important, you know, we get these numbers and, you know, make these fields safe. And he goes, Frank, when you got... Two, three hundred pound people running at 10 miles an hour into each other. It doesn't matter what they fall on. Okay, this is what I want to talk about. I don't want to go down the injury hole. What I want to do is talk about how you got numbers. You like soil moisture, you said, and you did some Clegg ratings. And you would use them to interpret what your maintenance program, I'm assuming what your irrigation system was doing, your mowing height, your top dressing, blah, 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 all the things you're moving levers on every single day to grow that two acres in in Spartan Stadium, right? You had numbers that you could show up at the table with in a discussion And to me, that's the powerful message here, that 
I don't think we always showed up with those numbers able to participate in those conversations because we really weren't sure how the fields were performing. I mean, listen, TDRs, you remember when there weren't TDRs. So these things are new ways of collecting data. I'm hoping that made you more confident in those meetings to at least participate and say, here's the things I think we can work with you on to get you what you want. Oh, it was a game changer to have the power of data. Look at how data is used today. Yeah. In medicine, in sports, training, in everything. And to be able to take scientific data and correlate it to different things that had reasonable correlations made all the difference. I could go to a coach. He was happy with his field yesterday, but he's mad today. And you know what? The numbers are the same. <laughs> right? Well, so, yeah. Then know, there's maybe, that. Maybe he could look at another factor that could have done that yeah, for yeah, him. Yeah. You know? But just being able to have something to support. Because we know that growing grass, having athletic fields, managing greens, doesn't matter what you do. It's an art and a science. That's right get to that. It still is. But you can't always explain the art and the feel. It's not voodoo, you know? I think having the data, it just was very, very powerful. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Amy Foudy. This has been an absolutely joyous conversation for me. She's a certified sports field manager and now the natural grass field consultant for the Moats Group. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Nutrient management in sand-based systems, be they a putting green or a soccer pitch, requires exceptional product formulation to maximize turf performance. Our partners at the Plant Food Company have products and programs that research has shown offer solutions that you can trust. So as you are putting together your nutrient management program, trust your Plant Food Company rep to provide you with the latest technology that supports plant health and maximizes playability. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with Amy Foudy, Certified Sports Field Manager and Natural Field Consultant for the Moats Group, currently based in Naples, Florida, although the company is based in Ohio. We have a sports field construction company in our neck of the woods up here, Amy. The Clark Companies, I think, is based not far from here. Maybe you've heard of them? Yes, I have. Okay. And so let me wrap up by talking about your wonderful experience at the Little League Softball World Series. What great fun that looked like to be with all those grounds managers at a really cool event. I know uh, Jeff Fowler's been doing it with the group at the Williamsport event in Pennsylvania. And honestly, I actually can't even tell you where the Softball World Series was this year, but I want you to tell me, where was it? What did it involve for you, the number of days you were there? And then we'll get into the great fun it looked like you guys were having. Wow. So I have volunteered for Little League Softball World Series now the past two years. And last year was the inaugural all-women's grounds crew event there at Little League. So when you look at Sports Field Managers Association and all the women now that belong to that organization, we had never put together a crew of all female sports field managers. It was really special to be a part of that last year and continue to be a part of it this year. You know, when I started 30 years ago, 
you know, I'd go to conference and, uh, you know, myself and uh, three or four other women would have like a whole place to ourselves. Yeah, in Michigan, you had Julie Stakecki and Kim Olson, right? Yeah, every conference I'd go to, we'd have this bathroom. It's like, okay, you can have these 10 stalls, and I'll have these 10 stalls. You know, we'd <laughs> joke about it, that we were, like, the only women in the industry. But to see, like, at Little League, we had some high school kids. We had some collegiate students as well, women who are early in their career, just starting their career. And then there's a few of us OGs. That kind of came in to help out and uh, be a part of sharing the knowledge and experience that we've had over the years with these young G's. So So where was it? How long were you there? So Greenville, North Carolina. Oh, wow. It's beautiful down there. Chris Ball with Ewing as our liaison. A couple other committee members, Camp and Son, Roseline. The four of us are kind of on the committee that works to get this whole thing put together. And it's so fun because I get to tap into just being a groundskeeper again. I know. Isn't for it like great? seven days a year. I can't do that work year-round anymore, but I can do it for seven days. That's exactly you know? right. So. You know, I've had my fair share of volunteering at golf tournaments, and I know exactly what you mean. I really enjoy being part of a maintenance crew. I really enjoy getting up early and getting out there and the camaraderie of those things that I never get to do. But like you, I, you know, at my age, I'm not interested in doing it full time anymore. So talk to me a little bit about being, I was going to call you the goat, not the OG. I love that. So how does it feel now? You know, you're closer to wrapping it up like me probably than you are starting. How does it feel watching this occur? It's got to be enormously gratifying to be able to encourage these young people. And also, it's got to be great for them to see you as a role model there. Yeah, it's very, very special, Frank. You know, I didn't know what to think or feel about it the first year I went. You know, I had never worked with a a group of women before in my entire life. So it was interesting. It was a little scary. A bigger line at the bathroom this time. Yes, absolutely. Longer line of the matter. But it's just so neat to get to meet all these young people. I miss being involved with young people, you know, not being in the campus environment anymore. For me, it just fills my cup up every year to be able to go and just talk to everybody. And, you know, there was somebody I met there. It was really interesting to me because I'm just a groundskeeper. I've just done what I've done over the years Mm -hmm. because I love it and I'm passionate about it and I love volunteering. You know, I didn't realize that I had had an impact Mm -hmm. on people and their lives and their career path through different things that I had written and spoke on and things like that. So it's very humbling to go meet some of these folks in person. Uh, There's a young lady there. She wouldn't talk to me for like three days and I didn't understand like... (laughs) what's going on and then she said like i don't even know what to say to you i've followed you your whole career (laughs) like this is why i'm here and it's just such a humbling experience because you don't realize that you have that kind of an impact on people it's so wonderful to hear you talk like this because i think everybody's winning here The young person's winning, you're winning, the field's winning, the event is winning. I just love 
when these things happen, but I, I would be remiss. It's so great. I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> you, so first time you work in a crew of, of all women, and for sure it's only seven days, so you, you don't have a, a enough data really to answer this completely. But for most of your career, you worked probably, would assume, primarily with men, in, not just at conferences, but many of the TERF students and people that come through even studying this are, are still, I would say, at least 90% men. Is there a different energy when you've got a group of women uh, managing a field than uh, being part of a crew that has a bunch of guys uh, running the running the crew? Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a little bit different energy. Even if you have one or two females on your crew, I think it changes the dynamic a little bit and the culture. Hmm. Because women think a little differently than men do. Mm -hmm. Not saying it's better or worse. You know, you just bring a new perspective mm -hmm. to the crew and how things get done. Mm -hmm. I am not boss in any way. I, I had to figure out throughout my career how to lift things smarter, how to be able to work smarter and not harder mm -hmm. through the process. Because I couldn't just brute strength through many of the things that I had to do throughout the years, you know? So... I want to ask you about being a woman in the profession. Do you ever feel like you've got to work harder to have the people at Michigan State listen to you? You know, the administrators. Do you still feel like you sense that they don't hear you? If there's a guy in the room. They look at the guy. I sometimes hear this from women, particularly in the landscape industry. I've got a number of women colleagues. They will sometimes say to me, yep. I've been trying to tell them, and I did this, and I did that, and not until the guy says something do they think it's the right thing to do. Please tell me that's going away. I definitely think it's getting better. I think some of that onus is on me to find the right position where I am valued, where knowledge is being shared with me generously, as I would share with other people. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that was really important to me in navigating my career was finding places that I could be successful. First of all, I would say as a woman, you have to put yourself in a situation where you can grow and thrive and be successful. You know, I never really thought of myself as a woman in a man's profession. Mm -hmm. thought of myself as a professional who just had this overarching passion for what I did and how I did it mm -hmm. and always just wanted to be the boss. I don't think I felt like I had to be the best to get noticed. I think it was just something in me that I just want to be the best. I remember a long time ago, one of my first conferences, Frank, where they gave out the Founders Awards. You know, I remember seeing Dale Getz up there ah, a long yeah. time ago receiving the top honor of the SFMA for the things that he had done. And I thought, I want to be like him someday. Like the people that I wanted to be like, I went and met them and spent time with them and just tried to learn what they had to share. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much for taking this time chatting with me. I'm so glad we were able to work this out. And I really have nothing but high hopes for you continuing to enjoy this dream job with the Moats Group. I hope there's a lot of exciting projects that lie ahead. Well, I'm working on a few now. I hope we can uh, share them with the world here soon. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot, Amy. Amy Fowdy, Certified Sports Field Manager with the Moats Group. I'm Frank Rossi. This has been Frankly Speaking. Thank you for joining me. Big thanks to Amy Fowdy. 
Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.